So let's read together. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So, Father, we ask now that you would send forth your word during this time, that you would use your holy scripture to speak to us and to reveal your truth um, about us and about the world around us, and above all else, your truth about Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we ask this. Amen. Well, good to have you all here. I'm, I was glad to see that, that we had less people last week because of the snow. If you're ever in doubt about whether or not to come out because of safety, please just, we'll miss you, but stay home for safety's sake. So I was glad to see that many of you made that choice last week. That was, that was a good choice. Um, but last week, um, any questions about things that we talked about last week? Because sometimes what happens is you'll hear something, you'll hear, hear one of us talk for a half an hour or 45 minutes or an hour, and, sudden, and you're just sort of taking a lot of information in, and you don't think of questions until after you go home. So I just want to ask, you know, last week we looked at John 6, and we looked at 48 through 59 in chapter 6 of John. And I just want to ask, you know, are there any questions that you had about what we talked about last week? Or any observations that came to you after the fact? Oh, Sarah, thanks. Nobody? Nothing? Really? Okay. Well, one of the things we really, we talked about, remember with John chapter 6, that um, we're looking here, John chapter 6 is a long chapter, remember, and we're looking, we looked several weeks ago with Andrew at the actual sign itself. There is the sign, a miracle done in this chapter, and remember that the, that miracle done was the feeding of the 5,000. And then we ha have this, and then we have at the conclusion of the meeting of the, of the excuse me, at the conclusion of the feeding of the 5,000, the people who received this miraculous bread, um, they want to take Jesus and make him a king by force. It says this, if you have your Bible open, it's in verse 14. And they say, um, in, and then it says in 15, Jesus knows this, that they intended to come and make him a king by force, and he withdraws to a mountain by himself. He escapes them. Because he knows that they're trying to make him a king on their own timeline and in their own way. And this is something you see all throughout the Gospels, that the notion of Jesus' kingship, which is the same notion as his messiahship, remember? Because the messiah is the anointed one, the ex and the expectation was that he would be a king, in, he is a king in David's line that would come and free Israel. That was what they believed in the first century. So they had this idea that the messiah would be a political ruler, right, that would free them from the rule of um, of Rome from being subjects to Rome. That was pri the primary idea behind what the Messiah would do. He would be the anointed of the Lord, and that's what it actually means, anointed. But so here they're trying to make Jesus a king in their own way. And as we know, Jesus was continually saying, yes, I'm a king, but not in the way that you think I am. And my kingship is much bigger 
than the idea that you have in your head about what it means to be a king. So Jesus escapes. We often see in John, we see Jesus escaping several times. He's almost killed twice. First in chapter 8 and chapter 10, um, people try to stone him. Um, it's just very often people are either trying to stone him or do things to him that he's not, that aren't a part of his plan, that aren't a part of God's plan. So he gets out of there. And he um, is up on this mountain, and he sees the disciples who are struggling in the storm, remember? And he comes to them. He sees them. He comes to them. He walks on the water toward them, and they think that he's a ghost. And then, um, but they're terrified, and then when he speaks to them, he gets in the boat, and the water is calm suddenly, and immediately they arrive at the place where they were going. So remember, all this has happened. They crossed the lake. And when they crossed the lake, they found that the crowd that had eaten of the miraculous bread is now stalking Jesus. Do you see that? Do you remember that? It starts in verse 25. They're trying to find out how he got to where he was going and basically how he had eluded them. Um, and he, t he starts to challenge them. And this is where we get a lot of talking. We get a lot of talking from verse 25 all the way through the end of the chapter where Jesus is basically challenging and interacting with this crowd of people, challenging them to, um, to not just, uh, to not be obsessed with the literal sign that Jesus has done, to um, not be seeking after him just because they are hungry and he has this ability to make food miraculously. Um, it is their bellies that are searching for Jesus and not their hearts and their souls and their minds. Um, and so he's challenging them. He says, don't work for the food that spoils, but for food that endures to internal life. So there's that component also that he introduces. Um, first of all, that he is the, the bread of life, the bread that comes down from heaven. Remember when he says that he himself is the very bread that comes down from heaven, he is saying that he is the new manna, that the old manna that their forefathers received in the wilderness was really just a prototype it was just a foretaste, foreshadowing Jesus, the true bread that comes down from heaven. Um, and Jesus goes on to talk about um, how the bread, how he himself, as the bread of life, gives eternal life to those who feed on him. And that becomes um, a hard saying for them. And one of the reasons why was when we looked at the passage we looked at last week where it starts in 48 and it says, um, well, first of all, one thing about, remember what we said last week, essentially that Jesus as the true bread from heaven, the true bread of life, the true manna that nourishes body, mind, and spirit, that true bread is not his words. You know, yes, Jesus is a good teacher. His words have Life in their life bringing words because they're the word of God as he speaks and teaches throughout scripture. We know that he's a great teacher, yes, but that's not enough, and that's not what he's talking about when he says he's the bread of life. Secondly, the what does it mean that he's the true bread that gives eternal life? Well, it does not mean that um, his deeds are what are what constitute that breadiness of life, it's not that he does these amazing miracles that transform people's lives. Yes, that's also really important. And that also brings life, but not eternal life, not the life that he's talking about. That's still not what he's talking about. So we can say Jesus is a great teacher, but we are selling ourselves short if we stop there. Yes, Jesus is a great teacher. Yes, Jesus is a great miracle worker. 
and he had the ability to perform all these signs. And he did all of these signs out of love. So yes, he is an example for us to follow, but that following the example of Jesus Christ does not bring life. He goes on to say, the life, and he says this, and I'm looking at verse 51. This bread, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And this bread, here we go, it's not his words, not his deeds. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So eternal life in Jesus Christ, again, I'm going to say it again, doesn't come from his words, doesn't come from his deeds or emulating his life of love, but the very bread of life that is Jesus Christ comes from his flesh and the fact that he offered himself as a sacrifice for sin. And so eating the bread of life, eating and feeding on Jesus' flesh and blood, which he goes on to say very graphically, he talks about his flesh and his blood, um, eating and feeding on his flesh and blood means accepting Jesus' death, his offering of himself on the cross in faith, and this um, receiving the gift of his very life given for us. Um, so, and we see that as we go to, um, as we receive communion again and again, when we receive the bread and the wine, what we're doing is we are again, once more, receiving the spiritual benefits of his passion and his death. So we're saying, yes, I receive again your death for me when we receive the bread and the wine. So that's what we talked about last week. Any questions about that? No? Silence? Silence? Well, one thing, just a little thing, too, that occurred to me that we didn't talk about last week, so I'll give you another little tidbit, and that's that, um, that the flesh and blood piece of it is, must have been very subtle, and this will segue with what we're talking about today. But remember in the Jewish sacrificial system that blood was something that God forbade the Israelites to eat. They, they, they could not eat, and we, we don't do this today. When you go to the butcher shop, there's blood in the meat because of the way that the animal was killed. In, um, in the sacrificial system in ancient Israel, they had to let the blood, they had to, when they killed animals, for sacrifice and for food. That was probably the biggest time when they ate meat was when they were sacrificing animals to God. Um, the blood is graphic. I'm sorry. Good morning. Um, but, <laughs> really, Deborah? We're going to talk about it. Okay. But um, the blood would drain out of the dead animal because of the Lord's injunction not to eat the blood. And the reason why he said that was the belief was that the life was in the very blood of the animal, which makes sense. No blood, no life. Um, and so when Jesus is saying um, that you must eat his, we must eat his flesh and blood, just imagine in that his first audience hearing those words, we have, they knew exactly what he was talking about. We have to Eat, we have to eat. So yes, there's life in the blood, but we have to drink <laughs> your blood. I mean, we think uh, we already. We it's too graphic to even think about for us, but for them it would have been even more offensive. They knew. They knew if they took him literally, it was horribly offensive, um, and it obviously would result in cannibalism. 
So that, that goes right into what we're looking at today. Do they fail to understand what they're talking about on purpose or by accident? And we see this, um, so again, we're starting with verse 60 in chapter 6. And um, so, and now, again, remember now, see it's his disciples that are saying this on hearing it, on hearing that Jesus is saying that his flesh is real food and his blood is real drink. And that drinking his blood and eating his flesh um, brings eternal life. So as he's saying that, many of the disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? I know, I'm sorry. I think there's so much humor in the Bible. I really think there's a lot of humor. Um, and I think it's perfectly appropriate to laugh. Well, first of all, it's his disciples who are saying this, right? This is no longer just the wider crowd. These are those who had committed to learning from Jesus by following him around and hearing what he was saying. So and I'm going to give you a little bit of Greek here. Please forgive me. I always get, it's hard to talk about a language when not everybody speaks it, and it makes you sound smarter than you are, but um, I'm, not, I'm not smart about this. Like the, the, um, the word for disciples is mathetai, which I love learning, because the mathetai, that, that's based on that Greek word, for a learner or a pupil, a student, is the same word that is then um, used for our English word mathematician. So there's that idea that they're learning from Jesus. They're studying every word that he says. And so in order to study every word that he says, they have to follow him. And that's another verb used in the Greek to describe what it meant to be a disciple. And the word, and you see it throughout the synoptic gospels. Remember with the um, calling of the disciples? They left their nets at the shore of Galilee, and they followed him. And I think we think of it because we think of following Jesus, but this following of Jesus, the very word used to describe discipleship, literally means walking behind someone. So you would, the disciples would walk behind him and hear his words and memorize them and learn them. So the group of people that are offended now at what he's saying are not just those people who were following him for the free food. This is uh, the smaller group of disciples who have been following him also for his teaching. And they say, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? So the question there is, do they really misunderstand what he's saying? Do they really think that he's talking literally about cannibalism? That's possible. We see this throughout the Gospel of John. It's a trend you see with Nicodemus. Do you remember in chapter 3, Nicodemus um, can't accept what Jesus says about being born again. And he says, how can someone enter his mother's womb again? Remember, he says this, and all of us as we're hearing him say it or reading scripture and we're thinking, really, Nicodemus, are you... We know he means something. He's talking about spiritual truth. How are you so blind as to interpret it literally, interpret literally what Jesus is saying? We see it also with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman in chapter 4, that she thinks that Jesus is literally talking about the water in the well that he will give to her always so she won't have to come back to the well. And, and, and again, as we're hearing her say this, we're thinking, no, he's, come on. Get it? Don't you get it? Again, he's talking about something way um, different. He's talking about the higher spiritual meaning and not just the literal physical meaning. So again, the question with these disciples that fall away, 
are they really interpreting Jesus's words literally? And I would say in this situation, um, no, I think they get what he's talking about. I think they get the spiritual significance of what he's saying. They just, it's too hard. It's too hard to imagine that the death of someone else could bring life. It's too hard to imagine that um, that someone's death, death could be saving, that through someone's death, um, one could be forgiven of sins, and that through someone's death, through faith in someone else, this someone who is both fully human and fully divine, that through faith in him, then there would be a different way, a different way of salvation and a different way into relationship with God, that the way to relationship with God would no longer be a way that is paved with good intentions, right? A way that is, um, involves um, obedience to the standard to the utmost degree um, to receive acceptance from God, that um, no longer is the law the way to good pleasure in God's sight, God's good pleasure. Now there's a way through faith in this man, this God, this fully man, fully God, who has come down from heaven and then would die. Um, for us. So it's through faith in Jesus Christ. And I, I do think that that's what they're offended by. And we see this all the time. You know, how many, I think there's, as far as apologetics go, and I heard someone recently, we've all really enjoyed Richard Simmons' teachings on Sunday mornings. And it is a challenge to speak to people who don't believe in Jesus about faith. Um, and one of the things that you have to do as you're doing that is to hold it lightly, understanding, knowing that sometimes people just don't get it, or it's too hard when they do get it. And that's the only, and, and so we can only try and tell them about Jesus and tell them about the good news in Jesus Christ. But when we do, we have to leave the outcome up to God, understanding that it is a hard saying and some people won't believe it. So, and again, we'll look again at what is it that is um, offensive for these disciples who, um, who don't like what Jesus has said. And again, looking, sorry, looking at the Greek. Well, first of all, he says, um, does this offend you? They're grumbling. And just a little side note on that grumbling. The grumbling, the word for grumbling is, John is meaning for us to remember the grumbling of the Israelites in the desert. Remember, they're brought out of Egypt, they get to the desert, and they say to Moses, what have you done? Put us, bring us back to Egypt. Remember, in Egypt we had leeks and pomegranates and fish and all sorts of food, and now we're going to die and starve in the wilderness. They seem to have so quickly forgotten the slavery that was a part of their life in Egypt. Isn't that so human? It's so like us, isn't it? Um, so that grumbling is what they do in the desert. They grumble and complain against Moses. And really, the Lord tells Moses, their grumbling is against me. You shouldn't be offended. Their grumbling is against me. So here we have um, someone greater than Moses, Jesus, eliciting through his words and deeds um, more grumbling out of, um, out of, out of sinful humanity. Um, and just a little, I always think of when I hear this grumbling, again, my theater experience comes to play, but I always, I picture this crowd and, you know, in staged crowd scenes on, on stage or on film, what often happens, they'll tell you, well, you know, now, now the crowd has to murmur 
We need the crowd to grumble or murmur or talk to each other. And it's so cheesy because you'll see people turn to each other and you don't have anything to say because you're not really involved. If you're in the crowd, I've been in the crowd a couple of times. And so you're an extra in this scene and you're not really involved and you don't have anything to say. And so you just turn to each other. And I've literally been a part of um, productions where everybody would turn to each other and go, Grumble, 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 grumble. <laughs> to try, try to create this bigger sound. You know, so if all of us were the crowd and we were grumbling, grumble, 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 grumble. But as a director, I've been on the other side of it too. And it's so frustrating when all your extras are so uncreative as to turn to each other and say, grumble, 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 grumble. And so I'd always say, can you, can you, can you talk? You have to actually talk to each other because it sounds different than just all this grumbling. So that's what I—that's my Rorschach test for grumbling is um, theater grumbling in a crowd scene. They're grumbling and they are offended. And the word for the offense that they take at Jesus is a very important word. Again, forgive all the Greek this time, but in the Greek, the word is um, the verb is the verb from which we get the word in English scandalized. They're scandalized, and that original verb means to. Cause to fall, to trip someone up. They've stumbled over this um, truth as they're following Jesus. Remember, they're following Jesus, and then he says something, and they fall. So I love that physical imagery, that this word of Jesus's has become a stumbling block to them. And there's a little bit of a history behind, scriptural history behind that understanding of a stumbling block. Um, so if you could turn with me, um, if you feel like turning, just keep one hand in John. You don't have to turn because there will probably be enough of us that do. And we'll look at Romans chapter 9, verse 30 through 33. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Let's go to 1 Peter first, right? That's what I have first on your sheet, 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2, 6 through 8. First Peter 2, 6 through 8. Do you want to read it, Kay? Let me find it first. Okay, well, whoever finds it and wants to read it. 6 through 8. I did put that one first. Yeah, that's right. I have it. Great, go for it. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, the stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, this, the stone the builders rejected has become a capstone. And a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. The stone. Thank you. The image of a stone. Peter takes the image of a stone in the Old Testament and interprets it to be about Jesus. He's saying that Jesus is, first of all, he's, he's this stone that for those who believe in him is a precious cornerstone. And you know, the cornerstone um, was the very corner of the foundation for a building. Jesus is the cornerstone for the building of, he, he's going on to talk about the building of the church. That And in that sense, of a cornerstone, I mean, Jesus is the whole foundation. But what he's saying is that the stone is precious. He says, a chosen and precious cornerstone. 
and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So for us who believe Jesus is a precious stone, but for those who do not believe, that same stone becomes a stumbling block. And this, the third scripture that he quotes, a stone that causes men to stumble, and that one's from Isaiah 8, and a rock that makes them fall. Jesus is a stumbling block um, for some people. And there's that dichotomy between him either being precious through faith or being a stumbling block. Um, and so for these disciples who begin to fall away, he has become a stumbling block. Um, I won't have us turn to 1 Corinthians 1, but there you'll see there's the same word. If you were to look at it tonight, there's the same word he used to describe the cross. But the cross itself is a stumbling block for the Jews and a folly to the Greeks. What Paul is saying there is that um, essentially the truth about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ is not something that is naturally received by human beings. We, we need insight from the Holy Spirit even to begin to say yes to Jesus and to see him as being a precious stone and not a stumbling block. So again, going back to apologetics, as you are, um, as you tell people about Jesus, as you have, you know, if you have the opportunity to, there is something to, sit, to be said for prayer, always. <laughs> prayer is always important, right? But that as you, even as you're telling them about Jesus, Unless the Holy Spirit opens their eyes to the truth about the gospel, um, you, there might not be any movement. They might not begin to see Jesus as a precious stone rather than a stumbling block. That it takes the Holy Spirit to open someone's eyes to that. Okay, so let's look one last um, passage at Romans 9. So Romans 9, 30 through 33. Does anyone want to? Um... What shall we say then? Gentiles did not pursue righteousness, but attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel pursued the law of righteousness, but did not attain to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith. That pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? Again, that the stumbling block, the thing that causes people to stumble. You know, Paul said, or, you know, Paul said in 1 Corinthians, the one we haven't read, that it is actually the very cross of Jesus Christ that causes people to stumble. That it is not just, you know, first for, in 1 Peter he's talking about Jesus himself being the stone. And Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about the cross being the stone. And here we see, um, here we see Paul talking about specifically that different way. Um, the way to righteousness, the way to have a righteousness that is an alien righteousness. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it through faith in Jesus Christ, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. So there we have two different ways of righteousness. The way of righteousness that involves measuring up to the standard of the law, um, the way of, 
of religion, really, and then the way of faith. And he's using the Gentiles in Israel. We see that now. We, we don't really have the ethnic distinction, but there is the spiritual distinction, right? That there's um, a sense in which we can either gain our worth from how we measure up, how we're doing against whatever standard we've put on ourselves or other people have put on us or scripture has put on us, even through the Old Testament law, um, whatever standard and the, then how we measure up then determines our worth and our standing with God. That's one way. And yet, um, when we are honest, none of us measures up to the standard perfectly. And that perfect measuring up is what is required by God for a relationship with God. To be in the presence of a holy God, we must be perfectly holy. And yet we are not. So how do we stand in the presence of a holy God except by this other way, this new way opened up through Jesus Christ? So this way of faith where as we believe in him and as we believe on him because of his death for us, then his righteousness is transferred to us and imputed to us. And so that as we enter into relationship with a holy God, our failures, we're not measured by our failures, but we're rather measured by his worth because we are united with him in faith. And that, that truth, that other, that, that new way opened up by Jesus Christ, Paul makes it so clear that, um, yes, before, as we said from First Peter, Jesus is the stumbling block. And earlier in the other verse, Paul said that the cross is the stumbling block. But here it is, it is so clear that both of those are shorthand for what is exemplified in Jesus, which is this new way um, of salvation through faith in him questions about that and how why why would that be a stumbling block for these disciples who've been following him okay well so it is a stumbling block and they you know flipping back to john chapter six they stop following him well jesus first of all he's provoking them again there's a lot of humor and also jesus is very surprising sometimes he's challenging them Pretty, pretty clearly. Does this offend you? What if, he's going to tell them something even more offensive, um, what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. And here the flesh, he's not talking about flesh in the same way he was talking about his flesh and blood. Here he's talking about um, the literal interpretation, the fleshly interpretation, the sinful, controllable human interpretation of what he's doing. He's saying, no, and just it echoes what he says to Nicodemus in chapter 3. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. They're about spiritual truths. Um, so the two things I said, two more offensive things in conjunction, I would say in conjunction with, um, with this way of righteousness, this way of salvation, is that he, he existed before the creation of the entire world and he's God. He says, what if, you, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? So again, where he was before, he's talking about his pre-existence, which we see in the first chapter of John. And again, that ties into the way of salvation because the only one who could be an acceptable sacrifice was um, one who could live up to the law perf perfectly, um, a holy, perfect human being who here is also God, that um, Jesus is fully man and fully God. 
So that is offensive. And then also then, um, and then also that the Son of Man ascends. So he's looking both to his past, if you think about it, his pre-existent past, and he's also mentioning his future in faith, knowing that he would then, when he, when he had given himself as an offering um, and a sacrifice for sin, he would then be raised from the dead, and upon his resurrection, he would then ascend into heaven. And with the ascension, there we have two things about the ascension that are important here. We have that Jesus, first of all, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and that he there has the Father's ear right next to his mouth. He there lives there, and Scripture says he lives there to intercede for us. That the intercession, just as he was a mediator for us through his death, he then now, in his absence, in his physical absence from us, he lives um, in reigns from the right hand of the Father, and in that placement, he, he's there right with the Father's ear. He intercedes on our behalf. He prays for us. And that's why we pray in Jesus' name, because he, um, he lives to intercede for us. And that intercession is made, made, um, made available to us through his death. So there's that. He intercedes for us. And then also that he's enthroned in heaven. Jesus is enthroned in heaven. And, um, and what an offensive thing for those who don't believe in him, that Jesus is Lord over all creation, and that one day everything... As we know it, every pain, every sorrow, um, every part of creation that is fallen, and by fallen I mean not just that sinfulness that resides in sinful human beings, in all of us as individuals, or corporately, I also mean the things about creation that are decaying. You know, Paul also talks about the decaying of all creation as a result of the fall. I can think of a lot of things that are decaying, and I think... Especially one of my favorites to talk about. Did I already talk about this? You have to stop me if I've talked about it. But um, well, because I have a brain like a sieve sometimes. But the, um, I've had some dental work done recently, and whenever I'm lying in the chair and you're paralyzed, right? You can't do anything. And if you've told them to pump you through with enough Novocaine, like I do, because I'm very sensitive, your your face is swollen. You're lying there. You're paralyzed. All you can do is look up at that awful little light on the overhead thing. And what's that? I said shining in your shining eyes. Shining in your eyes. I know. And my dentist even has this special bright light on his eye that he'll shine around in my mouth. And sometimes he'll get it in my eyes. I'm like, nope, nope. Aim better. Um, but so I have to, you know, to just keep myself from, keep myself calm in the chair because I hate it so much. I will sometimes count the amount of things in my mouth. I'll be like, there's pizza gauze over there. One. There's a drill. Two. There's that pick thing. Three. There's that sucker thing that's going to suck up all the old fillings. Four. It's just, um, but then again, I had fillings from a very young age as a, as a little girl because I have a sweet tooth. Um, so I had horrible dentist memories from pre, you know, from being five or six in the dental chair. Um, but tooth decay, I believe strongly, is... And this is not in scripture, it's just Deborah Layton's theory. I believe that tooth decay is a part of the fall, it's part of fallen creation, right? Because it's not the way it's meant to be. We ought to have perfect teeth. One day we will. But, um, so all that to say that all of that, tooth decay, um, <laughs> blood-sucking insects, I think also fall into the category of not the way it's supposed to be in creation, um, tsunamis and um, natural disasters, 
Um, then also the sickness and illness that we have in our physical bodies, cancer, um, the um, illnesses that we see afflicting all of our family members or even ourselves, arthritis, that is not the way it's supposed to be. And that Jesus there, as he has ascended um, at the Father's right hand, he's Lord over all creation. And we know that one day, as scripture says, he's coming back and all, all, the whole world will see that he is king and Lord over all. And he will, um, he will renew all creation. All creation will be remade into being um, once again perfect the way it was before the fall of Adam and Eve. So that is good news for us too. And all of that is because of his death and resurrection. All of that is possible because of his death and resurrection. So he's provoking these poor disciples into um, more offense based on, on who he is in the past and in the future, um, as well as based on his death and that way of salvation that comes through faith and not through works. So um, then they stop following him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Um, they stopped walking. In one of, my, one of my versions, I think it's the ESV, it says they stopped walking with him. Remember what I said before about discipleship walking behind the person that you're learning from. They stopped learning from him. They decided we're out of here. We're, we don't like this teaching. We're not going to follow him anymore. And just my little excursus about election. I don't have a lot to say here. Well, there's a lot to be said about election. Does everybody know what I mean when I say election, the doctrine of election? of being chosen by God. Um, well, here, if you know about that doctrine, that um, God chooses us. Yes, we have faith in Jesus Christ, so there's a sense in which some people say, is it more that we're choosing him or that he has shown, sh chosen us? And there's a mystery there, but I will always say that it's more that God chooses us because we don't always get to say that we will be moved and stricken by the good news of the gospel. Um, we can ask to be moved by the gospel and have our hearts strangely warmed, but we're not in control of it. God is in control of it. So there's that mystery of choosing. But one thing I will say about it is that um, how can we be chosen except that Jesus knows the end from the beginning? So this is just what this one passage has to add to the doctrine of election. He says this, Jesus had in verse 64 Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray them. Um, God in his sovereignty, and Jesus being God, also has the sovereignty and omniscience, all-knowingness, knows, um, knows the end of all human history from the very beginning. And so I think whenever you think about chosenness and what came first, the chicken or the egg, did I choose God or did God choose me, uh, we can rest in knowing that we, don't, we might not know the full story, being limited, finite um, human beings, and yet God has the picture of all human history from the very beginning. He knows the day of our death before we are born. And he knows um, what our life will be like, whether or not we will have faith in him from the very beginning. So is, there is that sense in which we are chosen by God to believe in Jesus Christ. Um, any questions about that very tough topic that I addressed in about a minute before we keep going? <laughs> well, it's the scripture. Jesus here is saying, he knew, I mean, John is saying, he knew from the beginning 
Jesus knew, knows from the beginning. He knows the end from the beginning. Is that predestination? Yeah, a little bit. Predestined to faith in Jesus Christ. Yeah, that is, well, that's a, do, election does involve the doctrine of predestination. Also, they're connected. And the chosen, the idea of being chosen by God, you see it in, in John's gospel, especially you also see it in Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Um, and it's certainly, it's a strong tenet of Calvinism. It's a very, so all of the Presbyterian churches and the Congregationalist churches. And um, faithful Christians agree and disagree on this. Um, and there is some measure of freedom in that. If I were to put Google and put in election, would I get that definition? No, what I just said to you? Yeah. No. No, but Google it. It's good to Google it. You can come back at me next week about it. Unfortunately, I'm not prepared right now to give you a full, I wish I were, I should be, a full you know, overview of the doctrine of election. But we can look at it next week if you want all this idea of, okay, we'll do that. We'll look at it. Because it's important, and it's something that comes up all the time in Christian circles. But I will say, I do think it's like the chicken and the egg. What came first, the chicken or the egg? Did I believe in God, or did God, you know, did I choose God, or did God choose me? Except that, again, I return to that experience of um, having our hearts strangely warmed, that moment when we, and for some people it's not a moment, but they can see the events of their life orchestrated to bring about that moment when they weren't they had no control over those events, and they weren't even trying to have those events happen. And then it's in the midst of that outward experience that we then, our hearts are then strangely warmed. Um, and that we receive, we, we understand, the light bulb goes off, we understand what God has done for us, and we receive it for the first time. This is in our first, what is it, verse 68. Yeah. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father, which is kind of the opposite, opposite of no one can come to the Father except through me. So I mean, so it's well, you can't come to the Father except through Jesus. Yeah. And you can't come to, yeah, it is. You can't come to Jesus unless the Father, well, they're connected, right? Yeah. Jesus is the only way to the Father, to relationship with the Father, and to access, again, to... Um, live in the presence in relationship with a holy God. It's the only way for sinful, unholy human beings to live in the presence of a holy God um, and to re be received and loved by God is through Jesus Christ. Um, and yet, there's that enabling of the Father mm -hmm. that brings about, again, like I said, that orchestration to bring about that the faith that, that allows, that allows, opens our eyes to say yes to what Jesus has done for us and to the way that is Jesus Christ, um, not the other way. Anybody else? James Smiley, I want to... <laughs> Any other talk, thought about election? We can go into it. It's a tough topic. And I w can you tell, I haven't even landed. Because I, I and maybe it's being a woman... I, I, I understand the arguments of both sides and I agree with the arguments of both sides and I don't think we'll I don't think it's for us to know that's the whole point of the doctrine of election is that we are finite human beings and we don't get to control our circumstances we don't even get to control the circumstances of our spiritual life well of course not we don't get to control it 
So how would we even be begin to get to control the beginning of it, that coming to faith? Um, but God is in control. And so then there's also that idea, and we see it in John chapter 3. Again, remember John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Well, the world in John is the whole world. And the world is um, not just those who believe in Jesus, but the all, all of humanity, all of creation. And you see in John that the world is very negative. He talks about the world, the cosmos, as being um, rejecting, as rejecting Jesus and being opposed to Jesus. But yet, still, John says, and Jesus says in 3.16, you know, again, God so loved the world, all of the worlds, even those who don't believe in Jesus and reject him. God loves the whole world, and Jesus died for the whole world, even though his death essentially becomes effective only for those who believe in him. Do you see that? How there's that bigger picture, and then there's also that, well, in a sense, Jesus only dies for those who believe in him because his death is only effective for those who believe in him. But he died, he was sent to die for the whole world. Anybody else want to come back on that? Okay. It's a mystery. I, isn't that terrible of me? I can say it in a setting. I think it's usually men that want to hammer it out. I'm like, well, is it, a, is it election or is it, sorry, I, I love our brothers. But I don't feel the need to, to um, map it out so specifically and so knowingly because, again, I think that's God's in control. We know that. We trust that. Okay, so um, then just to juxtapose, first of all, this, and now I'm going to go really quickly because it's time. So we talked about the response of these disciples who fall away, and that is juxtaposed here with the response of the 12. So Jesus turns to the 12 apostles, and he says to, him, he says to them, you don't want to leave too, do you? And I love Simon Peter's answer. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. So we see here that the 12 also, they're slow to grasp the significance of Jesus' words. They often don't know what he's talking about. I mean, when you look at the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus says like three times that he's going to die. Three times I'm going to die in Mark. Three times I'm going to die. And then when it happens, they're like, they're so surprised. And as we're reading the gospel, I'm like, really? He said it three times that he was going to die and be raised from the dead. What don't you get? But it's totally different 2,000 years later rather than being in the circumstance um, trying to understand what he said. They didn't understand what he said. There's another instance in um, Mark where, um, where Jesus talks about the leaven of the Pharisees. It's just after the feeding, the miraculous feeding, and Jesus talks about the leaven of the Pharisees. And one of the disciples says to the other disciples, just because we didn't have any bread at the meeting of the five, no, they don't get it. So the 12 don't get it either, just like the disciples that fell away. But they essentially their stance is one that is so similar to the stance, do you remember following the transfiguration of Jesus, that there's a man at the bottom of the mountain whose son is, has these violent seizures? And he wants him to be healed, and they've been praying for him. They've tried to, his disciples have tried to heal him, and they couldn't. And Jesus says, this one can only be cast out by faith, or in prayer, or cast out by prayer. And the, the man, the father says, I believe, help my unbelief. That 
that stance uh, of a disciple to say, I believe, help my unbelief. To have the honesty to say, my belief is not perfect, help me, um, is, a, is really a stance of faith and, um, and, and it's a way of continuing to follow Jesus even when, um, even when we don't understand him. So even though they don't understand him, they, 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 get, they know that, there's, that his words have eternal life. And they're not prepared to turn their backs upon their past experience of Jesus' saving help. Remember, they were on the boat, and they might have died just not too long ago, the night before, and Jesus came to them on the water and saved their lives, essentially. They're not prepared to turn their backs on that because they remember what he's done for them. Even if they don't understand it all the time, they believe, but help their unbelief. And so about that, what does that mean? Well, they have faith. But their faith is not perfect. But they're desperate enough to know that nothing else will satisfy. And that is true for us as disciples, too. As we're following Jesus in our lives, that, um, that how desperate are we? How much do we know that none of the other things that we might fill our time with or that we might um, give our lives for, uh, work for in our lives. Think of the things that take up the most time in your daily life. What, um, and they might be noble and wonderful things. They might be children and husbands and families and, um, or um, even volunteering and helping other people. Those might be great things, but they don't satisfy that deep-seated spiritual hunger that can only be satisfied through Jesus Christ. And so the question then becomes, as disciples, the mark of discipleship is not how great are you, how much do you obey, how do you, but rather, how desperate are you? How much do you need what God has for you in Jesus Christ? Because that is the only thing that will keep us fallen human beings coming back and saying, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So let's, let's pray. Um, so, Lord Jesus Christ, we turn to you and we say, uh, we say, we say yes. We say, um, we say again those words of Simon Peter. Where shall we go? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to cause your words to sink into our hearts um, and that you would, again, draw us ever to that ever-constant knowledge of our need for you. Uh, that we might look to you and be saved and receive all that God has for us in and through you, that forgiveness of sins, that, um, that uh, good sense of God's good pleasure over us, and that abundance of joy that is just like eternal life here and now, that abundant life that is for this life and not just for our life after death. And so... We, we love you and we praise you and we receive again all that you have done for us. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.